So this is a special episode. We're putting mostly behind a paywall and we're doing audio only, as I think will, I think the reasons for that will become clear as, as we delve more into the subject matter. I am joined by Nicolo Soldo, writer, substacker, and a keen student of American social history in particular, which is the subject of our discussion today. I started trying to put together all the threads here and I was going to write possibly a book about this. And while I was doing some digging, I came across uh, the oral history. It's, it's digitized University of California website. It's called the Calisphere. I came across an oral history of the early days of HIV in San Francisco, roughly 1979 to about 1985, when the first tests came out, when Rock Hudson died. That was very much a, a watershed moment. It was an oral history, papers collected, interviews conducted, with people in public health, people in care, people all around that, and on the political side as well. And there's eight volumes divided up by those segments where, they're, where they were employed at the time. And what I learned there was so incredibly shocking and eye-opening that I kind of zoned in on that. And I really started digging beyond that uh, let's say one, two, three degrees of separation. And it became almost an obsession for about two years. And some people are still mad at me for being obsessed about it. <laughs> but then the thing that I find so fascinating about the um, history of AIDS, having not looked into it in anywhere like the detail that you have, but having read some of the earlier texts like Randy Schultz and, and the band played on, some of the contemporary stuff, which isn't as influenced by the political narrative that has developed around it, is that the standard history that most of us will be familiar with is exactly backwards, actually. That's what, that's what I find really stunning about this. For me, it's a testament to actually the power of political fashioning of history. Another theory I have, it's a silly one, uh, it needs to be fleshed out much better, is that much like Europe came out of the black pig a lot richer mm -hmm. because so many people died off and people had to get paid more to be able to work, is that gays in the West have come up much stronger politically thanks to AIDS. Yeah. Huge tragedy, right? And there's been a, I don't think it's, it's, it's a retrofitting, I don't think that's the proper word for it, but reinventing the past to conform to present political narratives and objectives and goals. One thing that I'd like to point out is that in the 1970s, when gay liberation really took off, the Chant wasn't, we were born this way, we were born this way, but rather, this is how we choose to live our lives. Mm -hmm. It's a lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. And that's a complete 180 from what we're told these days. Yeah. That's one example. Another example, this is where I get spicy, okay, is that the standard progressive account of this history, which I, I was familiar with until recently, is that the reason that AIDS hit the gay community so hard was because of stigma, was because, for instance, Reagan refused to even mention AIDS in public for many years because there wasn't enough money put towards research. You know, it's not entirely false. Like, there was stigma. Reagan did refuse to speak about it. Perhaps there wasn't enough money put towards research and so on. There's not, it's not wrong. But the standard narrative is that it was conservatism that caused the AIDS crisis. Yeah, and that's an incredibly lazy and partisan uh, look at it. Yeah. The fact of the matter was that this was happening in the 1970s. Gay men, first time ever liberated, living in communities, 
able to identify themselves as open and out, in, getting increased political support in certain corners of the Democratic Party, flexing their political muscle. Let's look at Harvey Milk in San Francisco, mm -hmm. for example, the first alderman and who went on to become what they called the mayor of the Castro. They were experiencing this incredible amount of freedom. And the fact that their identity revolved around their sexual, uh, let's say, preferences, meant that they had to wear that on their sleeve. There was a famous joke in the 1970s about how gay men were going to the free clinic. And the reason why they go to free clinic is to get a shot and a date. They yes. find their next date there. The fact of the matter was that rates of chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea, and then as the decade progressed in the 70s, all sorts of exotic diseases not seen in a long time were compounding in the gay community in the United States and elsewhere, let's say the UK, Germany, Canada. Mm -hmm. And the solution always was, well, just get a shot of penicillin. You'll be fine in two weeks. Mm -hmm. No sex for a couple of weeks. But what was happening was that a lot of these men were getting sick because they were getting disease after disease after disease that was destroying their immune function, their immune systems. And when your immune system is destroyed and when there's a significant cohort in concentrated locales, that's when opportunistic diseases like HIV find an open door to walk in. And that's precisely what happened. When you explain how you know they blame it on conservatism, there was a hepatitis, I, think, I wasn't sure if it was A or B or C, but there was trials for a vaccine in, conducted in New York and San Francisco in the late 1970s, I think it was 1977-78. And by pure foresight, luck, I, I don't know how to explain it, a lot of those samples were preserved. And when they went back in there, about 10, 12 years ago, I think, in San Francisco by 1978, 4% of gay men already were infected. That's three years before Ronald Reagan got to office. No one knew what the incubation term was for HIV because no one knew what HIV was at that time. Yeah. So it was already impacting significantly by the time Ronald Reagan got into office. Mm -hmm. And there was no way in hell he could have put $10 trillion in there and these people still would have died. Hi everyone, you've just listened to a teaser version of this week's bonus episode. Uh, so the way it works is we've got our classic episodes on YouTube, on all podcast platforms, on Substack, uh, where I sit down with a guest for about an hour and have a conversation. For paid subscribers on Substack, you can also, for $79 a year or $8 a month, get an extended version of those conversations. At the moment, we've got one a week, but we are hoping as soon as possible to move up to doing two a week. Uh, and to have conversations in person as well. So um, paid subscriptions um, make it easier for us to do that because I need to pay my producers, you know, all of the resources needed to, to put out um, a regular podcast. Um, on Substack as well, there is also a founding members uh, paid subscription to here. So for founding members, you get all of that and you also get these full length weekly bonus episodes, about an hour, um, where me and my husband respond in a very unscripted way to listeners' questions. So that's for uh, $159 a year, uh, which is a bit over $13 a month. So uh, all of this is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. <laughs>